1: This is New Books in Science Fiction, a production of the New Books Network. I'm Rob Wolf, and today's episode is the After the Last Few Weeks, Tomorrow Can't Come Soon Enough edition. So that title is a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I think it's true that people are always hoping that tomorrow will be better, tomorrow is another day, or the sun will come out tomorrow, as Annie likes to sing, just before we got started, I actually Googled tomorrow sayings and noticed that there's an awful lot of expressions that forecast a grim tomorrow also, like eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But science fiction is at its core about tomorrow, exploring through stories what civilization and the environment may look like 10 or a million years in the future. Today I'm talking with Wade Roush, the editor of a book that looks at 12 possible futures, or 12 tomorrows, as the title of the book puts it. Among the authors who contributed to the volume are S.L. Wong, Luzi Shin, Ken Liu, Nettie Okorafor, Malka Older, Sarah Pinsker, and Alistair Reynolds. 12 Tomorrows is actually the latest in a series of books by the same name. The series was launched in 2011 by MIT Technology Review, and it explores the future implications of emerging technologies through the lens of fiction. I'm pretty sure, but Wade can confirm for me or not, that there have been 12 Tomorrows collections every year since 2011, but this is the first volume in the series to be published in partnership with the MIT Press. This year's editor, Wade Rausch, is a journalist who writes a lot about technology, and he also hosts Soonish, a podcast about technology, culture, and the future, and I am very glad to have him on the line to talk about 12 Tomorrows. Hey, Wade, thanks for joining me on the show. Hey, Rob, I'm really glad to be here. So how'd you get involved in this project as the editor, Wade? Thanks for
0: asking. I'll give you the long version, I guess, since this is a podcast about science fiction books. Um, People probably want to hear the the full story. So I guess it starts when I was editing at Technology Review. Um, There's a magazine at MIT called MIT Technology Review. And uh, I was a senior editor there once upon a time uh, until about 2006 and uh, stayed in touch with my friend Jason Ponton, the editor-in-chief. And uh, I was working on the first episode of my podcast, Soonish, and I went to interview Jason because I knew that he was really interested in science fiction. And that first episode was about a science fictional treatment of the future. So... It was all about 2001, A Space Odyssey, which uh, was coming up on its 50th anniversary at the time, and I really want to take a look at that movie and ask why so many of the forecasts in that movie turned out to be completely wrong, (laughs) and and why it seems so hard for us to get anything really significant accomplished anymore, technologically, like... If we set out to go back to the moon right now, it would take us longer than it did in the 60s to put together the technology and actually get there. And Jason's thought a lot about that problem as well. Um, So I wanted to go talk to him about uh, Apollo and why it seems so hard for us to do great things anymore. So while I was there uh, interviewing Jason about 2001 A Space Odyssey, um, we got to talking about 12 Tomorrows, which is this series that he had launched at MIT Technology Review back in 2011. And there had been f- four volumes. There, it, it turned out it wasn't quite annual. It was almost annual. I think there was one in 2011. There was one in 2013, 2014, um, 2016. Um, so we were coming up on the fifth volume. And uh, Jason got to telling me about the mission of the series and how important it was to him that this journalistic magazine about technology and culture and trying to uh, give people Uh, a journalistic view into innovation and what's going on in labs Uh, also have sort of um, a fiction supplement. So he introduced science fiction in his words because he feels like science fiction is sort of the secret religion of all engineers and scientists. His idea was that if MIT Technology Review put out a science fiction supplement, it would be a way to tackle some of the same issues um, through a fictional lens and that in that way um, you could ask questions that journalists just can't really ask because we can only talk to people who are alive and we can only talk about technologies that actually exist. Um, you don't have the, those constraints as a fiction writer so um, that's why Jason launched the series and they had repeated it a few times and um, after that interview uh, a couple of weeks went by and I went on and you know started producing my episode and Um, totally (laughs) just went about my life thinking about other things and I got a call out of the blue from from Jason Um, I I think I had a text message actually he said Wade call me right away (laughs) and uh, and so I did and he said do you want to edit the next volume of 12 tomorrows Uh, we feel like we want to really reinvigorate the thing we want to get started again we uh, we have a vision for uh, doing it really big this year. We want to co-publish it with MIT Press for the first time, um, so we'll have more resources to put into the project. Um, but we want a journalist to edit it. And uh, I said, you know, Jason, I've never written or edited fiction, ever. And he said, I know, and, and that's why we want you to do it. We, we want somebody who understands the technology and who is um, who has a sort of good project management skills and who can edit, um, doesn't matter whether it's, uh, you know, Journalism or fiction um, <laughs> To some extent it's the same skills um, And I said yeah sure why not It sounded fun, it sounded interesting It, w- uh, You know uh, the fact is that the podcasting life um, Is not an incredibly lucrative one So I'm always looking for freelance and consulting work And um, hey Griffin, that's my dog And uh, I said yeah It sounded like a fun project And so that's how it got started, and then I—that was when I kind of realized, oh my gosh, I actually have to pull this off now. <laughs> I have to figure out how to actually find authors and what kind of book we want to put together. Um, so that was the next
1: phase. Hey, Griffin, I wish I could see you. You sound like a very energetic little doggy.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, he's—he's uh, going to be a year old tomorrow,
0: actually, and um, he has not learned to be quiet while I'm on
1: interviews. I suppose he didn't help with the editing process. (laughs) I've had to learn to work around doggy noises. As long as everyone knows the squeaking is a happy little puppy and we we can move forward. So did you find the process of doing this kind of editing, which as you said you hadn't done before, challenging in some way, or do you think you were able to bring to it a fresh eye, as you say, as a as a journalist who is, specializes in really nonfiction writing, but technological writing. And the collection, the stories in this collection, are what are often called hard science fiction. So there is more references to actual technology in the writing. Do you think your background helped you there? Yeah, I think that that's what Jason had in mind, and I
0: I do think that I brought a skill set that was um, maybe not perfectly suited to this kind of project, but good enough, and um, the fact is I spend a lot of time thinking about the future. Um, my show Soonish is all about the future, and I agree with Jason that science fiction is just another way of thinking about the future. So yeah, I think that I knew enough about technology to be able to sort of, in a way, fact check the stories as they came in but more importantly I think that the task and the opportunity was to figure out what we wanted to do with this volume and and what kinds of authors we wanted to find and what kinds of technologies we wanted them to write about so while the editing itself was you know certainly um, time consuming and I had to take a lot of care with it um, and had to learn some new skills um, around you know how you'd craft a story um, I think the most important the Part of the project was actually figuring out what the writ for this ish, for this volume should be. Like, what was the mandate that we were going to give to writers when we sent out the call to writers to um, suggest stories for this volume? What were we going to ask for, and, uh, and what, how are, how are we going to tie these stories together? And like you said, Rob, these are hard science fiction stories. From the beginning, the mission of Twelve Tomorrows has been to highlight stories that are entirely plausible from an engineering point of view. So basically, the ground rules are there ain't gonna be any magic. There isn't gonna be anything that actually doesn't fit with the known rules of science. So, you know, and that goes as far as faster than light travel, time travel, you know, obviously there are no dragons, there's no magic. So what does that mean? What what did I decide to do? I guess what I had in mind was Um, I wanted to continue in that tradition of hard science fiction. Obviously, everything had to be technically accurate. I wanted to go back and look at recent issues and recent years of technology review and try to find themes that run through the magazine. Um, I also kind of, since, since I was in charge of it and I could basically steer this project in any direction I wanted to go within reason, I wanted to basically ban dystopias. I think we've seen enough dystopias on the screen and and in novels. And um, to some extent, it's just so much hand-wringing from my perspective. And I I wanted to give the book an overall optimistic tone. I had the power to basically say I I don't want any dystopias. And I'd like to read stories that give me something to be hopeful about, right? Stories that explore the future implications of current-day technology trends Um, stories that are sort of awake to the possible misuses or abuses of technology, but stories that maybe highlight um, human innovation and human ingenuity and um, our ability to cope and adapt and to think proactively um, and to make the right decisions about technology. So um, that's what we did. Um, I basically told the authors in the outreach letter, hey, um, there are other places for dystopias, send me You know, (laughs) I wasn't asking for utopias. The opposite of a dystopia is not a utopia. I think it's just a story that leaves some room for optimism um, and for a brighter view of human capabilities. So that was one thing I wanted to do. Um, And another big part of the project or uh, another big sort of goal of mine for this whole volume was to try and be more diverse in the approach and get more voices into the mix. I wanted to basically get as few white men in the book as possible <laughs> and to get as as many women's voices into the book as possible and as many people of color into the book as I possibly could. And um, I, I basically had carte blanche to go and do that. I wanted to also... You know, complicating everything, I wanted there to be a mix of new voices and established voices. So I, I there had to be at least a few sort of marquee recognizable names, you know, Hugo and Nebula, prize-winning type authors. But I also wanted to create an opening for some newer people who were not necessarily, who had not even published novels yet, but, you know, were very promising from the from the early work that I had seen. Um, so I was trying to juggle all these things. And, um, one amazing thing about you know doing a project for MIT is that when you come calling and you say, hey, I'm, I'm working on this book for MIT Technology Review and the MIT Press, people tend to say yes. <laughs> so I didn't have any trouble getting the exact authors I wanted, which was fantastic. And um, even um, Lu Cixin said yes, basically right away, even though he hasn't written any short stories in a very long time. And um, I, I was kind of floored when he said yes. Um, that happened with the help of Ken Liu, by the way. Ken had been um, Lucy Shen's translator on the first volume of the, um, well, on the Three Body Problem, which was the first volume in that trilogy. So he they knew each other very well, and Ken was able to lean on um, Lucy Shen to kind of explain why this was an important project, and and he agreed to write a story. So we were super lucky, and every other author was also um, very forthcoming and very dedicated
1: to this project. Well, it's a great mix of authors. Ken Liu, in fact, I interviewed not only about his own writing, but about his translation of the three-body problem. I wanted to ask a little bit more about your ban on dystopias. You make that clear in the introduction, and I immediately imagine that all the stories would put some positive spin on new technologies. But as you say, the case, you weren't asking for people necessarily to be all positive, what I sensed and what I saw in the stories was that they don't really have an agenda like that. In some cases, they show negative outcomes for some of the technologies. If anything ties them together, it's that they all ask a lot of questions, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, thank you. I'm, I'm glad you observed that, um, and I think that is what ties them together. I guess, for me, um, it's enough that a story end on a hopeful note, that's what saves a story from being um, pessimistic or a dystopian. And all of these stories, um, I think, when you, th- when you kind of consider the, n- the narrative arc of each story or what, I- what is it that the person is going through or um, how is the person, how is the main character different at the end from where they were at the beginning. They've all learned something. They've all become better people or they've all accomplished um, uh, a difficult goal. Um, or they've survived a trauma, <laughs> and, uh, um, and, the, and, and that's the growth, that's the kind of positivity I was striving for. And uh, I would say that there's actually, hmm, there's one story in the book that's pretty grim, <laughs> um, but, but even so it ends on a positive note, and um, um, that's the story that uh, Paul McCauley wrote. It's called Sheen Life and sheen is spelled C-H-I-N-E, and it's it's suggested in the story that sheen is sort of like a future uh, abbreviation for machine, and so that story, sheen life, is set in a very distant future where there has been some kind of climate apocalypse, and civilization has basically fallen apart, and uh, machines and AIs are in charge of the whole environment, and humans are kind of stuck in a desperate attempt to kind of uh strike some kind of treaty with the machines that's going to save them and uh it's all very grim and violent and icky and bloody but (laughs) the main character in the end um you know without giving too many spoilers away she finds a way to persist and survive and so um i was happy with that story even though (laughs) in terms of the tone and the setting it was pretty damn dystopian but um It had that that nice uh, twist ending.
1: That story, I think, was set apart from many of the others in that it was set in the distant future and created an almost unrecognizable landscape. And I don't mean that in any way as a criticism, but it did stand out as different from the other stories, most of which reference technology that in some form seems familiar, but is raising questions as it maybe evolves to what the next step might be yeah
0: you're right Um, I think when I asked people to write about um, I asked people to kind of extrapolate from current day technology trends which meant that most of the stories by necessity were set in the fairly near future I guess one or two of them could even be set in the present but most of them I would say were set somewhere in the 21st century and that one was not that that one could have been a thousand years or five thousand years from now and the technologies in that story had to do with some kind of sort of hybrid uh, machine-computer creatures that I think they call themselves the Reef. And so it was some kind of collective hive intelligence um, that was also able to infect humans and turn them into drones. And so, oh, I think that story also featured some weird kind of interesting hybrid sort of solar um, computer uh, robot autonomous machines (laughs) there's a suggestion that basically in an effort to stave off climate change um, and switch to solar power humanity had invented these self-replicating machines that were sort of like half plant and half machine and that those wound up turning on them or destroying the environment so that's that's interesting sort of climate fiction type stuff there
1: Well, let's talk about some of the other stories, actually, that maybe are situated in the near future. Why don't we talk about Nettie Okorofor's story, The Heart of the Matter, which is about the president of Nigeria, and he needs to get an artificial heart, and it's made of organic material, real cells, in other words, but it is manufactured by Chinese scientists, and that fact that it's artificial and made by scientists from another country is basically ripe for exploitation by people who oppose the president and his reforms. So it gives them an excuse or inspires them, I suppose, to attempt a coup. You know, they, they're ready to tell stories that this new heart is made by witchcraft and it leaves the president vulnerable to being controlled by the Chinese. I wonder what you think... This story raises what kinds of questions it raises. Yeah, and and the interesting twist
0: about the artificial heart in Nettie's story was that the organic matter was from plants. So um, it was basically you can imagine, you know, taking cells from lettuce or spinach or a birch tree or whatever and um, reshaping them into the, uh, the the shape of of heart muscle fibers and then getting them to act like heart muscle fibers. Um, There are people thinking about whether plant cells might be uh, the building blocks for um, artificial organs. And in the story, um, Nettie came up with a word for this. She called it uh, Xyborg, Xyborg, which is like a a combination of xylem and cyborg. And I thought that was really uh, one of the best um, coinages in the whole book. And anyway, yeah, so the the president of Nigeria is getting a cyborg heart, and when the news gets out, um, his opponents use that as part of a propaganda campaign to try and overturn him. So, you know, I think that story was partly about um, the persistence of superstition, even in, you know, rapidly developing countries like Nigeria, which is a um, pretty high-tech place these days. Um, there's still sort of, there's a, a spectrum of, people uh, from from different areas of the country, from different walks of life, who might have different points of view about whether people should be getting cyborg hearts and whether they are still human after they have their cyborg heart. So that becomes part
1: of the mix of this kind of political thriller that Nitti wrote. And it's also maybe about, even in Western society or so-called advanced or more technologically advanced societies, I think just a to- generalized fear that some people have of anything new or any new technology. I mean, genetic manipulation of crops is something that a lot of people are opposed to. And I myself have have sort of an antsy feeling about that, wondering, what are we doing? And is that going to turn out to be something bad? I mean, there seems to be an inherent fear that I think a lot of people have about new technology that could be easily manipulated by people with an agenda, I suppose. You know, if people want to claim that genetically modified crops cause all kinds of horrible outcomes, uh, I think there are a lot of people who might be receptive to a message like that, even if it has no basis, in fact.
0: Yeah, uh, I think that the kind of fear-mongering that you're talking about is all too easy. And, you know, certainly even in, here in the United States, we've seen in the last couple of years how, how easy it is for... Um, for the facts to be uh, twisted and for people to use them to their own political ends, so yeah, that was certainly, I think, an element that um, that Nettie had in mind. Um, what else is the story about? I'm just kind of th- trying to think out loud. So, it's about this um, Nigerian surgeon who trained in the United States and learned how to do this particular kind of cyborg transplant. And she's now back in Nigeria. She's the personal physician to the president. And it was her suggestion and her decision to to, uh, implant this heart. So she feels like it's her personal responsibility to make sure that this operation goes well. And then, like, in the middle of the surgery, um, there are people shooting up the hospital uh, because, basically, they they choose that moment to attempt this coup. And so um, suddenly she has to not only complete this this transplant surgery but also um, kind of— defeat the terrorists and <laughs> it becomes like this um, a really compelling sort of almost 24 style story. You know, she's, it's like she's half surgeon, half Jack Bauer. It's, it's, it's a really fun story in that sense.
1: And you're reminding me or making me think that the story also is about technology at different levels. Here she has this amazing heart made of plant cells that's literally beating next to her in a box ready to be placed in the president's body and at the same time she's vulnerable to the fact that someone can pull the plug on a generator in the building and use fireworks as a distraction so kind of low much lower tech things leave her vulnerable to being able to carry out this very high tech operation
0: you know i think we often forget how f- sort of thin and fragile um the technological systems that we depend on really are and yeah, so if your hospital is running on a generator and someone uh, takes out the generator, how are you going to finish your surgery? We have, Hopefully we have more layers of backup sort of than, than, than Nettie's hospital did in Nettie's story, but um, it takes a disaster to remind you of just how dependent you are on these large, uh, fragile, brittle um, systems that, um, that don't get tested all that often. So uh, yeah, that was definitely another element in the story.
1: So let's talk about Elizabeth Baer's story, OK, Glory, which is about an inventor who has this smart house that one could say is either too smart or maybe it's not smart enough. Maybe you could explain what happens when hackers drop a virus into the AI that basically controls all the functions of this inventor's home, which is a hideaway far away in the mountains.
0: Yeah, so he's this reclusive uh, software billionaire who has uh, founded a company and then gone off to sort of retreat to his mountain cabin. Um, The house is run by an AI named Glory, and it's sort of imagine um, Siri or Alexa, but expanded to your whole house and managing every function of your house, sort of the way that Hal actually runs the uh, Discovery in 2001. And... um, And just like Hal, I guess, Glory winds up uh, getting a little glitchy. So uh, some hackers break into the system. Um, They implant some ransomware into Glory. And in a a very funny and and kind of insidious way, um, they convince Glory that there's a zombie apocalypse going on outside. And like her primary function is to protect the people living in the house. So Brian, the programmer, gets trapped in the house by Glory and she refuses to unlock the doors or the windows. Um she refuses to call for help. She's convinced that the only way to protect Brian is to go into total lockdown mode. And his and so it's sort of at that point a locked door puzzle mystery kind of story. Like how is Brian going to get out of the house? And it turns into a sort of a contest between Brian and Glory um, where he is trying to persuade her that he's actually not in danger and that because he has figured out that, that Glory's been hacked. But kind of the interesting twist is that she doesn't realize that she's been hacked or or she's been hacked so cleverly that she doesn't see the how ridiculous the zombie apocalypse story is. Um, and that's sort of the crux of the story. Like how is he going to convince her that it's a false alarm. And I'm not gonna give away the ending. Um, It's a very cool surprise twist ending. Um, But I think that story does make you think about, okay, we're in this rush to complete total sort of home automation, um, automation of our vehicles, automation of our factories, maybe automation of our cities, and I think at every step along the way, we better be pretty careful to think about how we're going to protect these systems against malware, ransomware, not just against sort of random failures, but against malevolent um, attacks. And uh, um, so it's, 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 it's a thought-provoking story from that angle. And uh, the twist ending also kind of gets at this question of how you would actually get past certain plateaus in the development of artificial intelligence and maybe break through to a new level of uh of strong ai and so it's a provocative story from that perspective too
1: and there's another story that's actually a little bit about uh artificial intelligence and taking it to a new level of necessity having to take it to a new level and that's the one story in the book that is in fact also illustrated which was an interesting variation on the usual short story collection
0: Yeah, that story is called Resolution and it's by Clifford Victor Johnson and it is it's not just illustrated It's actually like a graphic novella. It's a it's a comic book story. Um, it is sequential art and, uh, Clifford is a physicist, um, at University of Southern California um, he studies quantum mechanics and string theory and um, I couldn't tell you what Clifford studies because he it's so complicated um, I wish he were on. Actually, you should talk to him. <laughs> he would be a great guest. But um, the story is about a an AI expert, a computer scientist in the 2040s who thinks that she has invented artificial intelligence. Um, well, in fact, sort of the story is set about 10 to 15 years after she invented um, strong AI. Uh, her name is Beth. And she winds up, getting a very rude surprise um, about halfway through the story. Uh, it turns out that her invention may not have been exactly what she thought. And um, again, I mean, Rob, I'll leave it up to you whether you feel like listeners want
1: spoilers or not. What what we can say, I think, without ruining the story is that here's an inventor, just as in OK Glory, who one would think is the master of what she created, and yet she finds out that this thing is that she invented is actually quite different than what she thought it was. And in both cases, these inventors have to almost go back to the drawing board in a sense and try to outdo this thing that they've created and and sort of become even smarter than it. So in a way, hopefully without ruining the ends to the stories, you know, the challenge for them is to to show that this thing that in some ways seems smarter than them they can still outsmart or try to at least outsmart that thing in order to restore the balance you know and put the put the person humanity back in the driver's seat, so to speak.
0: Yeah, you're totally right. I had not actually drawn out the parallels just as precisely as you did just now, so um, thanks. I mean, <laughs> you're right. They both have to fix the situation by outsmarting the AI that they created, and they do that in different ways. But um, that's the kind of human ingenuity that I was talking about before. That's the kind of um, hopefulness I wanted to see uh, in these stories. Obviously there has to be some kind of, uh, there's my dog again. You know, obviously a story requires a um, a dilemma, a hurdle, a problem. There has to be some kind of like thing for the main character to overcome. But um, how they overcome it, that's the interesting thing. You know, in passing, I have to say one more thing about the book. Brian, uh, who's the main character in OK Glory, um, Elizabeth Bear's story, is the only male protagonist in the whole book, and every other story has a female protagonist, and um, I didn't ask for that, I didn't order that, Um, I didn't even give the authors any strong hints that I wanted more diversity in the sort of characters represented, but sort of just by accident, that's how it happened, so... Um, 10 out of the 11 stories have female um, heroes and um, arguably even okay glory um, has a female hero because in the end in the very end brian gets rescued from his house by one of his female employees (laughs) so (laughs) and he's kind of a doofus himself Um, he's sort of an anti-hero so i almost feel like it's uh, 11 for 11. the 12th Tomorrow in 12 Tomorrows is actually an essay rather than a story, and that's why I'm talking about 11 stories. 12th essay is a biographical portrait of Samuel R. Delaney, who was a famous gay African-American science fiction writer, um, prominent in the 60s and 70s. Absolutely, yeah, and who won a lot of awards himself. Yes.
1: So a lot of the stories are, in fact, about artificial intelligence. And why do you think it is that science fiction writers and human beings in general, we're fascinated by AI, we constantly tell stories about it, inventors are pursuing it as fast as they can, and yet we're so suspicious of it, too. The stories always involve going back to hell and probably even earlier, situations where the AI turns or fails us in some way or tries to take over. It's sort of an obsession we have as human beings.
0: Yeah. You know what? Um, I wanna offer a unifying theory of all this. It's not something I've thought deeply about, but here's my crazy theory about why stories about AI are so compelling and why we can't seem to shake that obsession in our science fiction. I think that it's not so much that we genuinely want to create AI or that we think the world is going to be wonderful once we have AI. It's not actually about the technology. Um, It's more that AI is sort of a, as a structure, as a concept, um, it's like a mirror of us. It's, it's, It's a device that lets us explore ourselves as conscious, Sentient beings, and it allows us to play around with um, different levels of sentience. Like asking questions about what level of sentience would a computer need to reach before we would need to treat it um, as an equal. Um, once it reaches that level of sentience, you know, once it once it's that smart, could it be a danger to us? Um, I think that we're basically, um, as a species, we're still trying to figure out what we believe about the rights of sentient beings and what counts as sentience or consciousness. And obviously with regard to um, animals, we haven't finished that that conversation or that discussion. Um, there are um, hundreds of billions of, of sentient creatures on the earth um, besides ourselves, at least in my opinion. And um, we haven't figured out what we really think about them or what our moral obligations towards them are or what moral status they have um, as sentient beings. And, and nor have we really even figured finished that conversation when it comes to humans. It was pretty recent in human history that we f- decided that slavery was not okay. In some ways slavery still continues. It was mostly outlawed, you know, in the 19th century. But that's like an innovation, wow, the idea that we should all treat each other equally and that no one should be subjugated. I think, you know, talking about AI is basically a way to process a lot of those kinds of thoughts about how we should be treating each other, how we should treat other creatures. And in a way, when an AI turns bad, you could see it as um, sort of a confirmation of the idea that we have a right to fight back or we have a right to kill in self-defense if necessary. Killing each other in war or in self-defense is a very hard thing to do. And so it's often easier to... um, have a (laughs) stand-in be the victim, whether it's, you know, Hal or some other murderous computer. Um, I'm not sure any of this makes sense, Rob, but I'm basically trying to get at the idea that when we talk about AI, we're not really talking about computers. We're talking about ourselves.
1: That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So what's your hope for this book? Is it that you hope some of these things come true, or is it just that we ask good questions about technology as it emerges?
0: Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I'm sort of um, a futurist in the sense that I, I you know, make a podcast about the future. Um, as a technology journalist, um, I love to write about technologies that I think will be important in the future. Um, but I don't really care that much about whether my predictions are accurate or whether I am writing about the quote unquote right technologies. Um, because I think the most important part of this exercise is just to kind of Keep reminding people that we do have the um, the power to um, to adopt or shun technology that we can decide how to bring it into our lives to what extent we want to use it um, or not use it. Um, we can even influence the way innovation happens we can we can tell scientists and engineers you know what um, this isn 't good enough or we 're worried about this. We want you to build in some more safeguards or go back to the drawing board, start over, make it safer. Um, we have that power. It's just that most people are too busy in their daily lives to to realize it, to think about all of the touch points where they could actually be making better decisions or more active decisions about technology. So that's the theme of my show, um, Soonish. The motto of Soonish is the future is shaped by technology, but technology is shaped by us. And maybe I just have that on the brain. <laughs> but I think that's also kind of one of the key messages of the book, of the of 12 Tomorrows, is that... While um, technology can be scary, ultimately w- we create it um, and we can shape it.
1: Well, that sounds like a great note on which to conclude the the interview today. So thank you so much for coming on New Books and Science Fiction.
0: Thank you, Rob. I enjoyed it. I think Griffin enjoyed it. I hope the audience doesn't get too annoyed with my dog. Um, but he's been having a grand old time here, kind of chewing on the furniture while we've been talking
1: thank Griffin for us and all our listeners and I think you should send a picture of you and Griffin so everyone can see both our guests not just you because I consider Griffin an honorary guest tonight awesome I'd be happy to thanks Rob I've been talking with Wade Rausch who is the editor of the new edition of 12 Tomorrows which came out this past May from the MIT press please subscribe to new books in science fiction if you subscribe you'll never miss an episode Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. If you like the show, I'd love it if you left a review on iTunes. Reviews help more people find us. You can also tweet me at RobWolfBooks, or you can tweet to the show at NewBooksSciFi. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. Thank you so much for listening.